Genesis chapter 8, God's faithful memory, God remembers his people. I have a very distinct memory from when I was a kid. Uh, I must have been seven or eight. And when I was growing up, we went to and attended a, a pretty large-sized church, at least compared to what I've other places I've I've attended it seemed large to me and compared to our church it was definitely large it's probably 800 people 800 900 people and it, it felt pretty big and there was you know a lot there had a pretty big a facility a pretty big grounds with multiple buildings and uh, I remember okay also I should set up before you my family there are six of us kids okay I am one of six so there's a good number of us to keep track of okay and my dad was a pastor so my dad was often really busy after church. He was talking to people, counseling people, doing things as pastors tend to do. And so my mom often, you know, kind of had to keep track of all of us by herself. Um, and we had this bad habit of not wanting to leave church. Now, you might say, why is that a bad habit? Don't you want people to love church? Well, yes. But I, as a seven, eight-year-old, it's not that I didn't want to leave church because I love Jesus. I didn't want to leave church because I had too much fun playing with my friends after church. And we had the main building with the auditorium and the lobby there. And then on, on a, a, a little bit away, there were some modular buildings where like the youth group was and some of the other classes. And we used to go and play all over the campus. So the, the, again, it had a pretty big campus. The church did. It had a parsonage on property. It had a, a pond. It had like a little picnic area, uh, a field. So some really big areas. And we used to go and play out there and run around with all the other kids from church, particularly me and one of our other friends. Uh, who attended there. And sometimes my older, my older sister, Catherine, uh, who I think is going to come back in. If you see her, we also ran around together and maybe I can blame her because she was my older sister and I was just following her example. But we used to run around there and play and play and play. And the, the worst part was that we knew when my parents wanted to leave church and you kind of get that spidey sense as a kid. You're like, oh, I kind of see my parents like, you know, like, oh, it's been about 10, 15, 20, half an hour. Like, I know they want to leave. And you kind of could see. And we... This is not good, but we sometimes would even see her looking for us and we would run and we'd like go play on the other part of the campus behind the buildings, hoping that she couldn't find us. And we would, we, we hid from my mother. Yes, it was terrible. Don't do that. Now that I have one kid, he's not old enough to do that yet, but I'm sure he will at some point and I will be frustrated. And we used to hide from my mom because we didn't want to leave church. And I remember one time, very distinctly, we were playing and playing and we we're like, oh, this is great. This is awesome. We're playing. I don't even know. It's been a long time. My parents aren't going to take us away from church. And then I said, man, it's been a really long time. Maybe we should go try to find my mom because I can't find her. So we went back to the main building, to the auditorium, to the lobby and the little atrium there. And guess what? My mom had left. <laughs> my mom had left with the rest of the kids. I'm pretty sure it was just me and my friend. So all my siblings had gotten in the car and left. My mom had forgotten me. Now, looking back, there's no one to blame but myself. I was hiding from her, so I'm not sure why I was surprised by this. But she just forgot. You know, you, you get, there's six kids, so you get them all in the car, and you don't, you're not, hey, this time she didn't number them all. You know, we didn't have call out one, two, three, four, five, you know, like, a, you know, sound of music style. We didn't do that. And they got in the car and they left. And the, the feeling of dread overtook my heart. Now, there were still lots of people there. And I sort of knew them, but as a seven, eight-year-old, you don't really know the adults that well, even though they know you. Well, eventually somebody called my parents and they came back and they got me. But that feeling of being left behind and forgotten was very scary. I'm pretty sure for a while after that, I stopped hiding from my mom 
They said, okay, mom, I'm going to stick with you this time. And we often feel that way in our relationship with God, I believe. We are tempted often to think that God has forgotten us. You know, we have six kids in my family. God's got a lot of kids. He's got a lot of children out there. And you might be here today thinking that God has forgotten you. And that God has left with all his other children. And he's taken care of them. And he has neglected you. Today in our sermon, we will see that God always remembers his people. Remember our setup, we looked last week at Genesis 6 and 7. And what has happened? The world has been corrupt. It has been filled with evil. And so God has sent a worldwide destruction, a judgment on the world through the flood. Everything has been destroyed, has been wiped off the face of the earth, except for Noah and his family his wife, his three sons, and their wives, and the animals on the ark. And they have been in this ark for six months-ish, waiting and waiting and waiting. And this, this, the ark was not a cruise ship. There was no water slides. You know, there was no all-you-can-eat buffet. Uh, it was probably dark, dank, smelly. <laughs> Uh, you know, if you were taking care of animals, you know what it's like. An enclosed, confined space. They've been waiting and waiting and waiting. And they have not heard from God since he closed the door, told them to get in the ark and closed the door. God has saved them. But now they're just waiting. And that's where we begin in chapter 8. Then God, verse 1, remembered Noah. And every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to pass over the earth and the water subdued. The, mount, the fountains of the deep and the windows of heaven were also stopped. And the rain from heaven was restrained. And the waters receded continually from the earth. At the end of the 150 days of the water decreased, then the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. God remembered Noah. Remember, God had established a special relationship, a covenant with Noah. If you look back in chapter 6, verse 18, what had God told him? But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. This covenant, the word covenant really means agreement, means a contract, an established formal relationship between the two parties. In covenants with God, he is always the initiator, He's always the guarantor. He is the one who promises blessing and deliverance. Now, if you look through the Bible, some of God's covenants come with stipulations, such as if you go read the covenant at Mount Sinai, God warns the children of Israel there, I will make my covenant with you. If you obey me, you will have blessing. If you disobey me, you will have curses. I will judge you. But most are unilateral. The one being offered the covenant simply has to obey God and enter the covenant to receive the blessings. In this case, Noah. What does God tell Noah to do? God tells Noah, I'm going to make a covenant with you. You only got to do one thing. Build the ark and get in it. That's how Noah entered the covenant with God. And that established the relationship. God never neglects or breaks his covenant. He cannot break a promise based on his own character. And this is the basis of God's remembrance. He cannot and will not forget his obligation. This is really where the term loving kindness, if you've seen that, the traditional word loving kindness, or even mercy, steadfast love in the Old Testament, those words are referring to God's faithful, loyal love for the people 
that are in relationship with him. It is similar to a marriage relationship. A marriage is established with vows of loyalty and love, and the one who keeps those vows will act with faithful love, with loyalty. There is a reason that God regularly speaks of his covenant in terms of marriage. When God, well, when Israel violated their covenant with God, the Lord called them an adulterous wife. Go see the book of Hosea. The entire book is a picture of God's relationship with Israel when they had not been faithful to him. In the New Testament, the church is called the bride of Christ. We look for Christ's return and what it takes place when Jesus comes back, the marriage supper of the Lamb. This is an established formal relationship built on promises and vows of loyalty. God always keeps his covenant promise. God remembers his people. And of course, this remembrance means action. God's memory here does not mean he recalled. <laughs> Remember, God all knows everything. God didn't God is not like my mom who forgot me and then remembered me. God never forgot Noah. But what this remembrance means, this memory means a movement toward those whom he remembers. God remembers Noah and does what? He says, "Oh, I remember Noah's in that ark." Well, I'll come back to him later. No, God remembers Noah and sends a wind to push back the water. He closes the fountains of the deep. He stops the water from heaven. Do you ever believe that God remembers you, but continues to neglect you? Do you ever believe that God is repulsed by his memory of you? You know, sometimes when it comes to us, sometimes we remember people and then we wish we didn't. Oh, that person. Man, I hope I never have to talk to them again. That's not how God remembers you. God's memory does not cause him to withdraw from you, but to draw close to you, to draw near to you, to move toward you. God has offered participation in a new covenant today. We are part of Noah's covenant in a way because we're Noah's descendants. Next week, we'll look at that specifically. But we are also, if you are a Christian, part of a new, different covenant. Noah, as we saw last week, in many ways points to Jesus. Noah was a righteous, just man who was the representative of all mankind, who through his obedience brought salvation for the world. Jesus also was a representative for humanity who stood righteous and blameless on our behalf. He offered his own body as a sacrifice to God to forgive sins. He was buried and he rose again the third day, promising new life to all who believe. Again, what did Jesus say at the Last Supper, which we quote every time we do communion, Lord's Supper? Luke 22, verse 19 through 20 says this, and he took bread and he gave thanks and he broke it and he gave it to them saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Likewise, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is shed for you. If you have repented of your sins and if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ for deliverance, you are part of the covenant of Jesus' blood. You are part of God's people. You have been brought into a special relationship with God. And he will remember you. He has not, he cannot, he will not forget you. He does not, he, he is not and cannot and will not be repulsed by you. 
but instead will draw near to you because of his faithful memory towards you. James 4.8, written to Christians who were in sin. This, this verse was written to Christians who needed to repent. And, G, and James says to them, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Yet God, even though these Christians stood in sin, divided by, by, by envious and jealous hatred, God still stood ready to receive them if they simply returned to him. God draws near to you today. You simply must humbly draw near back in return. Remember, God's faithful memory means action on God's part. It means he is acting towards you on your behalf. And God's faithful memory brings several blessings. God remembered Noah. And what does what happens? After God saves Noah, God's faithful memory promises renewed life. Okay, so the water has been spread out. It has been, it has been pushed back. It has dissipated. And the, the ark has come to rest on the mountain of Ararat. But there are still three months while Noah waits in the ark. I would, I would get antsy, pretty antsy. Noah's like, okay, the, the, the ark has stopped, but now we still got to wait three months. And then we look in verse six. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark, which he had made. Then he sent out a raven, which kept going to and fro from the waters had dried up on the earth. He also sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her foot. And she returned to the ark to him for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her in and draw him, draw her into the ark to himself. And he waited yet another seven days. And again, he sent out the dove from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth. And no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So he waited yet another seven days and sent out the dove, which did not return to him again anymore. First, Noah, we must recognize Noah, the ark rests, but Noah doesn't really know what's going on. Remember, Noah, there's no Twitter. There's no uh, news cast. There's no satellite imagery. Noah doesn't know what's going on outside the ark, really. I mean, he can look out, but how much can you really see? Not that much. You're on a mountain. It's kind of hard to tell. So Noah wants to find out what's going on. So he sends out some birds and he sends out a raven first. Now, this might have been, I don't want to this is a little bit of speculation. This might have been somewhat of a pessimistic first option. Because what do, what do ravens eat? Dead things. They're carrion animals. They're like vultures. Well, Noah might have thought, well, there's a lot of dead things probably out there. When we send out this raven, and the raven flies around not finding a place to land. Uh, but then, and note also, some commentators have noted that the raven would have been more expendable in that sense. It was an unclean animal. It was not good for eating. It wasn't good for sacrifice. And the raven does not return. Though I suppose we can deduce that the raven made it safely somewhere because we still have ravens today. Remember, there was only one one pair of ravens on the ark. So if that, if that raven died off, I, I don't know. There might not be any more ravens. So I suppose we can say the raven did make it somewhere. But the raven never comes back. So then Noah sends out a dove. The dove in scripture is a bird that represents purity. It would later be used for sacrifices in the temple. And think of how the Holy Spirit is illustrated in the Bible. Think of the baptism of Jesus. The Holy Spirit comes down like a dove. Again, purity. Noah is a little more optimistic the second time and risks a little more. It's a more valuable bird. The dove would also need growing plants and trees to make a nest or to eat. 
It would not survive in a world of only death and decay. And the first time, the dove returns because it could not find any place to rest. But the second time, it returns with an incredible sign of hope. A freshly plucked olive leaf. A branch. And the imagery of the olive leaf is almost too much to overlook here. Even still to this day, we have remnants of the imagery here. Because what do you extend to an enemy? An olive branch. As a sign of goodwill. Of peace. The olive, this, the olive branch, meaning peace, has remained for thousands of years. It's been around for a long time. Yet, even more than just peace, think about Noah's place. Where, he, where is he right now? Think of all the death that has happened. Think of the destruction that he knows has taken place. Do you think despair could have easily set into his heart? Do you think he could have easily given into sorrow and grief and fear? Yet when this dove comes back with an olive branch, what is it telling Noah? Life is growing again. There's a promise of life, of hope in a new world. In the darkness that Noah uh, experienced in this ark, literally and figuratively, spiritually as well and emotionally, here is a sign of renewed life. God's promise to you today promises the same. Hope for new life in a world of death and darkness. Noah was an old world man entering a new world. But we as Christians, we are new world people still living in an old world. God's faithful memory and salvation in Christ can give you hope for the future. Do you ever fear despair because of this corrupted world we live in? Do you ever feel overwhelmed by the, the, the evil and wickedness? the darkness we feel around us. God has promised that he will bring about a new creation one day that does away with all death and destruction, corruption and chaos, sorrow and sadness. Yet it may be hard to hold on to that hope of that promise. But within you, by the work of God's spirit is an olive branch, a small picture, a small portion of that new world to come. And in our church, we are to be collectively a picture of that new creation. We are to be ambassadors of a new flourishing world that is yet to come. We live out this new life in Christ that we have received and look forward to that new creation coming. This is living in the truth of the resurrection. What does the resurrection promise? A recreation, a new life that is coming. God's faithful memory promises renewed life. What does Romans 8 say? For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself also will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Not only that, but we also have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves grown within ourselves, eagerly waiting for the adoption, the redemption of our body. Do you yearn for Christ's return and for the renewal of all creation? If you don't, I think you have settled for this world. But that is our hope. 
we have God's spirit. We have a spiritual new life within us. Yet we live in a body physically that is still decaying. And it is a picture of the physical world that will one day be renewed as well. So God remembers his people and promises renewed life. So you must live your life today focused on that new life to come. We also see that God's faithful memory gives renewed purpose. Look at verses 15 through 19. Then God spoke to Noah, saying, go out of the ark. You and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you, bring out with you every living thing of all flesh that is with you, birds and cattle and creeping thing, so that they may abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wives and his sons' wives with him. Every animal, every creeping thing, every bird, and whatever creeps on the earth according to the families went out of the ark. God commands Noah to take his family and the animals and leave. Get out of that thing. Depart the ark. God has prepared the earth anew for them. And he says to leave so that they may, quote, abound on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. Now, if you are discerning in reading the Bible, you will immediately say, wait a minute. That sounds familiar. Where have I heard that before? And where have we heard that phrase before? Abound on the earth and multiply and fill the earth. All the way back in Genesis 1 and 2. Who was that command given? Adam and Eve and all the animals saying, go, multiply, fill the earth. God has wiped out the wickedness and corruption on the earth as a way to start over. In a way, Noah is like a second Adam. God's like, you know what? We're going to start over again. That didn't go so well. So we're going to start over again with Noah and his family. Now, it has only been a few chapters for us. But remember that it has been at least 1,500 years between Adam and Noah, between Adam and the flood. God has brought Noah through untold destruction and horrific judgment, yet he doesn't leave him adrift. He doesn't just say, go out of the ark and figure it out for yourself. He gives him a renewed purpose, a restored purpose that mirrors the original purpose of Adam and Eve. To fill the earth with the glory and image of God and animal kind. And today God gives his people, us, the church, a renewed purpose as well. When you are brought into the covenant of Christ, you are not left to figure it out for yourself. You are not left adrift. God gives us a purpose. And it's not actually that dissimilar from Adam's or Noah's. They were supposed to what? Multiply and fill the earth. Fill it with God's image, which is humanity. To make all of the world a picture of the glory of God. And what is the church's purpose? In Matthew 28, Jesus tells his disciples when he leaves, before he goes back to heaven, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Where are they supposed to go and make disciples? The whole earth. Look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 and 22. What are we building as we make disciples? Now, therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together for a dwelling place of God in the spirit. What are we as the church building? a worldwide temple for God's spirit to dwell. 
Look at 1 Corinthians 3.16. A lot of 3.16s in the Bible. I don't know why. Random thought. 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? And this is the collective. You all are the temple of God. Because God dwells within us individually and together. And back to Ephesians 4. And he gave some to be apostles and some prophets, some evangelists and some pastors, teachers. For the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying. Literally the, the building. It's the same word as building. The building of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man. To the measure of the statue, stature of the fullness of Christ. That we may grow up into all things. Into him who is the head. Christ. Whose image are we supposed to look like? Christ. We have been washed thoroughly from the from our wickedness by baptism into Jesus' death and resurrection. Spiritual baptism, which is pictured in physical baptism. God has given us a new purpose, a new commission. You might even call it a great one. The ultimate purpose of God's people today, his church, is to fill the whole earth with people who bear the image of Christ. Not simply the image of God in humanity, which is corrupted by the fall, but the renewed image of God in Christ Jesus through discipleship, baptism, and the transformation of God's spirit. This is what brings glory to God. There are many purposes we can have and we can pursue. And many of them are good things. But the ultimate purpose is to fill the earth with the image of Christ through making disciples. And what is your purpose? Do you see every aspect of your, li of your life as re revolving around the ultimate goal of glorifying God? By first, being transformed into the image of Christ, and second, making disciples who are being transformed into the image of Christ? Isn't that what we're about? Right? Who is the church? We are. What is our goal? To glorify God. How? By being disciples, making disciples. Upon whose glory are you focused? Do you care more for your glory or God's glory? Do you care more about your children's glory or God's glory? Would you sacrifice your ambitions, your money, your job prospects, and even your rights for God's glory and the advancement of God's church? Are you working to build God's temple or your own? Are you working to build a temple for God filled with people who are transformed by the gospel to look like Jesus? Or are we working in our lives to build a temple that is full of images that look like us? and of what we want. If you feel purposeless, know that God has not forgotten you. He grants renewed purpose in Christ. God remembers his people and gives renewed purpose, so your life today must be driven by God's new purpose for you. Thirdly, we see God's faithful memory prompts renewed worship. Look at verse 20. And what is Noah's response to all this? Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took of every clean animal and of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And the Lord smelled the smelled a soothing aroma. Noah's response to a new world, a new life, and a new purpose following God's deliverance is worship. Noah builds an altar and sacrifices one of each of the clean animals to the Lord. Now, to us today in America, 21st century, the butchering and burning of an animal may seem very odd to us and even repulsive as a means of worship. But these sacrifices demonstrated viscerally, seriously, truths about worship that we often forget. 
First, worship requires death. The results, the wages of sin is death. Sacrifice demonstrates the deadly serious reality of sin and its destruction. Sacrifices point to the necessity of a substitute for mankind to die in our place. It requires death. It points out that sin results in death. It requires also true sacrifice. Animals were precious and important. Today, most of us get our food from the store. You go down to fries and you're like, hey, time to pick up some food. But for all of human history, most people got food and many other products from their own animals and crops. To kill an animal in worship to God might seem like a waste, especially to burn it up. <laughs> can you imagine what people might have thought? Yeah, I mean, you can kill it as a sacrifice, but why don't you take it home and, and eat it? That might be months worth of food for your family in a world where you don't know if you were going to have enough. And you're just going to waste it to worship God? But true worship desire requires sacrifice. Noah only had seven pairs of each clean animal. He took two of every animal except for clean animals. And he takes one of each of these animals to waste them in honor to the Lord. That's real sacrifice. The sacrifice was truly destroyed. It was burnt down to ashes. Nothing remains. The one offering the sacrifice signified to God that all he was belongs to God. All he has belongs to God. Nothing is left withheld from the Lord. This animal is burned up completely. How do we remember God since he has remembered us? Is your response to God one of worship? You do not have to die for your sins because another, the perfect sacrifice, has died in your place. You do not have to die to atone for your sins. But are we willing to die to ourselves in worship? Are we willing to take up the cross of Christ and put all of our will, our desires, and purposes on it? Are we willing to sacrifice, to truly sacrifice something? Does our worship cost us anything? Or is it just the additional stuff we didn't need? Do you only give to the Lord what is extra and unused? Worship is not just going to a service and leaving with happy feelings. That's not worship. Worship is the response to God's grace in which you willingly set aside all of yourself. You die to yourself in complete dedication to God. This results in living for God in every aspect of your life. This means in your work, in your family, in your finances, in your church, and even when by yourself. Worship looks like giving to those in need, especially when it actually costs you. Worship looks like attending your church's gathering to sincerely praise God and hear from his word. Worship looks like confessing and repenting of sin and not holding back. Worship looks like involving yourselves in the lives of others to be salt and light and to bear the burdens of other Christians, even though you feel like you can't take any more burdens. Worship looks like praying regularly. Worship looks like acting honestly and not being lazy at work. Worship looks like forsaking any corrupting communication at home. 
Worship looks like sacrificial love in your marriage. Worship looks like graciously loving your children. Worship looks like honoring your parents. Worship looks like sharing the hope of the gospel in need of repentance with others. Worship looks like forgiving the offenses of others as God has forgiven you. Worship looks like striving to maintain unity centered on the gospel of Jesus in our church. Worship requires complete dedication. Worship requires true sacrifice. Worship requires us to take up the cross of Jesus every day. What does Romans 12:1 say? The well-known verse. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. That word service is the word worship. Same word for worship. We must present all of ourselves as an offering to God. But you must remember that you do not worship to earn God's favor, but we worship in gratitude because Jesus has already earned forgiveness. It is in praise to God that we worship like Noah did. Noah didn't offer sacrifices before the flood so he would be saved. Noah offered sacrifices after he was saved in thanks to God. And what does Hebrews 13 say? Therefore, by him, Jesus, let us continually offer the sacrifice of our praise to God. That is the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name, a sacrifice of praise. God remembers his people and prompts renewed worship. So dedicate your life to worship to God. And lastly, God's faithful memory promises security. Verses 21 and 22. The Lord smelled a soothing aroma. Then the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground for man's sake. Although the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth, nor will I again destroy every living thing as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, and day and night shall not cease. God promises that as long as the earth remains until the final judgment, it will continue to function. It will never rest or cease. When it says never cease, it literally is the word for Sabbath. It's never going to take a day off to rest. Can you imagine the fear that Noah and his family must have felt coming off the ark? Can you imagine the, the, the stress? I mean, talk about post-traumatic stress. Yeah, can you imagine what Noah might have thought? We better do this right, or God's going to do this again to us. In the aftermath of such a great devastation, what does God give them? Not a warning saying, don't mess up like everybody else did, but a promise of assurance, promise of security. You can trust God that the world will keep spinning, literally. You can trust God that he is in control. You can trust God that he will uphold his creation. If the world is destroyed, it will be by God's will, not ours. And in our world today, there's a lot of fear that our world will be destroyed. And we don't know what's going to happen in the future. And this was before my time, but I have heard, I've read, I've listened to people about the fear of nuclear war that was placed during the Cold War. And today there's Fear of things, climate change that will destroy us. You know, remember in like the 90s and 2000s when all those disaster movies were super popular? Every time you turn on the TV, it's like, oh, the meteors are coming. Oh, the superstorms are going to destroy everything. There is always fear of what will take place, but God upholds his creation. 
Now, this doesn't mean that God will never judge, send judgments or destruction on parts of the world, but the world, mankind, in as a whole, will continue until God desires it. <laughs> and just as Noah offered a sacrifice that pleases God and elicits a promise of future security from God, what did God do? He smelled the sacrifice and he offered promise of security. So also there is another who offered a perfect sacrifice which pleased God and elicits a promise of eternal security for us today. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11 through 14. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Eventually the priesthood would be established. And what would they do? Offer sacrifices just like Noah has done to God. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. By one offering, he has perfected forever those are being sanctified why would jesus sit down because he's done working this isn't a work from home job jesus clocked out he punched the time card he's done he sat down at the right hand of god because his sacrifice is finished and this is what he said on the cross it is finished there was no more sacrifice to be made when we have communion we have lord's supper we are not sacrificing jesus again This is what the Catholic Church teaches, that every Mass is a new sacrifice of Jesus. It is wrong. This is not Jesus' sacrifice. It is done. He has sat down. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. By one offering, he has perfected. He has finished those who are being sanctified. Rest in the finished work of Jesus. Do you believe you have to keep working for your salvation? Do you think whether you say it or you act this way that God will cast you aside if you if you are not perfect? If you sin, that God will is done with you? Stop trusting in your own works. Trust in the finished work of Jesus. This is where assurance is found. This is where security is found. Not in the date you prayed. Not the date you wrote in your Bible. Not in the words of your prayer. I struggled with that as a teenager for many years. Did I, did I say the right words? It's not about the words I said. It's not even necessarily in the strength of your faith. I thought that too. Oh, was I 100% trusting God or was like 95% trusting God? What about 5%? It is not in the strength of your faith, but it is in the strength of Jesus in whom you place your faith. God remembers his people. God can no longer forget you than he can forget his own son. God can no more cast you aside If you are in Christ, then he can cast aside Jesus himself. Trust in Jesus. Rest in Jesus. God remembers his people. There is only one thing that God forgets. We looked at Hebrews 10, 11 through 14. Look at verse 15. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us that he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds will I write them. And he adds, their sins And their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. What does Romans 8.1 say? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Who are you trusting today? Are you trusting in your own works? 
even your own faith, or are you trusting in the finished work of God for security? Are you resting in God's promise or your own works? No, you know, I'm 100% sure that Noah didn't do maintenance upkeep on the ark after the flood was over. Noah's like, I got to keep this thing ready. I was like, God, change out the transmission. I got to change the oil. I got to repitch it. You know, in case another flood comes, this thing's got to be ready. Noah, he, no, Noah left it behind. He didn't need it anymore. He had God's promise. So also, we have the promise of Jesus. If we trust in him, we repent and put our faith in him. There is no going back to say, well, I got to keep my works up just in case. Just in case God changes his mind. God remembers his people and promises security. So live your life today strengthened and empowered by God's promise. So, are you dedicating your own heart and life to God in worship? Or are you holding back from him? God remembers you. Remember him in worship. Are you living for God's purposes or your own? God has remembered you. God remembers you today. Remember him and where the purpose of your life. Where is your hope placed? Do you have any hope? Or are you overcome with doubt and despair? Look to Jesus, says the author and finisher of our faith. Is your hope in a politician? Or an election? Is it in your job? Or finances? Is your hope in your family, your spouse, or even your children? Is your hope in yourself? All of these will fail you. Only the reality of new life now by the Spirit and the promise of a new creation to come in the future will provide lasting hope. God remembers his people and gives a promise of new life. God remembers his people and gives a renewed purpose. God remembers his people, prompts renewed worship. And God remembers his people and gives a promise of security. God remembers his people. God remembered Noah. Will you remember God today? Father, thank you for today. I pray that you would help us to remember you. I pray that you would help us to honor you. 